Section number 17 of Hinduism and Buddhism in Historical Sketch, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Shashang Jakmola. Hinduism and Buddhism in Historical Sketch, Volume 1 by Charles Eliot. The Hindu and Buddhist Scriptures. The history and criticism of Hindu and Buddhist scriptures naturally occupy some space in this work, but two general remarks may be made here. First, the oldest scriptures are almost without exception compilation, that is, collection of utterances handed down by tradition and arranged by later generations in some form which gives them apparent unity. Thus, the Rig Veda is obviously an anthology of hymns, and some 3,000 years later, the Granth, or sacred book of the sex, was compiled on the same principle. It consists of poem by Nanak, Kabir, and many other writers, but is treated with extraordinary respect as a continuous and consistent revelation. The Brahmans and Upanishads are not such obvious compilation, yet on a careful inspection, the older ones will be found to be nothing else. Footnote 63. This is not true of the more modern Upanishads, which are often short treatises specially written to extol a particular deity or doctrine. End footnote. Thus the Brihad Aranyaka Upanishad, though possessing considerable coherency, is not only a collection of such philosophic views as commended themselves to the doctors of Tetriya school, but it is formed by the union of three such collections. Each of the first two collections ends with a list of the teachers who handed it down and the third is openly called a supplement. One long passage, the dialogue between Yajnavalkya and his wife, is incorporated in both the first and the second collection. Thus our text represents the period when the Tetriyas brought their philosophic thoughts together in a complete form, but that period was preceded by another in which slightly different schools had their own collection and for some time before this the various maxims and dialogues must have been current separately. Since the conversation between Yashnavalkya and Maitri occurs in almost the same form in two collections, it probably once existed as an independent piece. In Buddhist literature, the composite and tertiary character of the Sutpitak is equally plain. The various Nikais are confessedly collections of discourses. The two older ones seem dominated by the desire to bring before the reader the image of the Buddha preaching. The Sanyukta and Angutra emphasize the doctrine rather than the teacher and arrange much the same matter under new headings. But it is clear that in whatever form the various sermons, dialogues and dissertations appear, that form is not primary but presupposes compilers dealing with an oral tradition already stereotyped in language. For long passages such as the tract on morality and the description of progress in the religious life occur in several discourses and the amount of matter common to different sutta and nikayas is surprising. Thus nearly the whole of the long sutta describing the Buddha's last days and death, which at first sight seem to be a connected narrative somewhat different from other suttas, is found scattered in other parts of the canon. Footnote 64. Mahapani Nibbana Sutta. See the table of parallel passages prefixed to Rhys David's translation, Dialogues of the Buddha, 2.72. End footnote. Thus our oldest text, whether Brahmanic or Buddhists, are additions and codifications 
perhaps amplifications of a considerably older oral teaching. They cannot be treated as personal documents similar to the Quran or the epistles of Paul. The works of Middle Antiquity such as the epics, Purans and Mahayanist sutras were also not produced by one author. Many of them exist in more than one recensation and then usually consist of a nucleus enveloped and sometimes itself affected by additions which may exceed the original matter in bulk. The Mahabharat and Prajnaparimita are not books in the European sense. We cannot give a date or a table of contents for the first edition. They each represent a body of literature whose composition extend over a long period. Footnote 65 much the same is true of the various editions of the Vinaya and Mahavatsu. These texts were produced by a process first of collection and then of amplification. End footnote. As time goes on, history naturally grows clearer and literary personalities become more distinct. Yet the later Purans are not attributed to human authors and were susceptible of interpolation even in recent times. Thus, the story of Genesis has been incorporated in the Bhavishya Puran, apparently after Protestant missionaries had begun to preach in India. The other point to which I would draw attention is the importance of relatively modern works which supersede the older scriptures, especially in Hinduism. This phenomenon is common in many countries, for only a few books such as the Bhagavad Gita, the Gospels and the sayings of Confucius have a portion of the eternal and universal sufficient to the outlast the wear and tear of a thousand years. Vedic literature is far from being discredited in India, though some tantras say openly that it is useless. It still has a place in ritual and is appealed to by reforming sects. But to see Hinduism in proper perspective, we must remember that from the time of the Buddha till now, the composition of religious literature in India has been almost uninterrupted and that almost every century has produced works accepted by some sect as infallible scriptures. For most Vishnuites, the Bhagavad Gita is the beginning of sacred literature and the Narayaniya is also held in high esteem. Footnote 66, the latter part of Mahabharata 11. And footnote. The philosophy of each sect is usually determined by a commentary on the Brahma Sutra, the Bhagavad Puran, perhaps in a vernacular paraphrase, and the Ramayana of Tulsidas are probably the favorite reading of the laity and for devotional purposes may be supplemented by a collection of hymns such as Nam Ghoshna, copies of which actually receive homage in Assam. The average man, even the average priest, regards all these as sacred works without troubling himself with distinctions as to Sruti and Smritis and the Vedas and Upanishads are hardly within his horizon. In respect of sacred literature, Buddhism is more conservative than Hinduism or to put it another way has been less productive in the last 1500 years. The Hinayanists are like those Protestant sects which still profess not to go beyond the Bible. The monks read the Abhidhamma and the laity the suttas, though perhaps both are disposed to use extracts and compendiums rather than full ancient texts. Among the Mahayanists, the ancient Vinaya and Nikayas exist only as literary curiosities. The former is superseded by modern manuals, the latter by Mahayanist sutras such as the Lotus and the Happy Land, which are, however, of respectable antiquity. As in India, 
Each sect selects rather arbitrarily a few books for its own use, without condemning others, but also without according to them the formal recognition received by the Old and New Testaments among Christians. No Asiatic country possesses so large a portion of the critical spirit as China. The educated Chinese, however, much they may venerate their classics, think of them as we think of the masterpieces of Greek literature as text which may contain wrong readings, interpolations, and lasuni, which owe whatever authority they possess to the labors of the scholars who collected, arranged, and corrected them. This attitude is to some extent the result of the attempt made by the first emperor about 200 BC to destroy the classical literature and to its subsequent laborious restoration. At a time when the Indians regarded the Veda as a verbal revelation, certain and divine in every syllable, the Chinese were painfully recovering and repiecing their ancient chronicles and poems from imperfect manuscripts and fallible memories. The process obliged them to inquire at every step whether the text which they examined were genuine and complete, to admit that they might be defective or paraphrases of a difficult original. Hence the Chinese have sound principles of criticism unknown to the Hindus and in discussing the date of an ancient work or the probability of an alleged historical event, they generally use arguments which a European scholar can accept. Chinese literature has a strong ethical and political flavor which tempered the extravagance of imported Indian ideas. Most Chinese systems assert more or less plainly that right conduct is conduct in harmony with the laws of the state and the universe. End of section 17.